Welcome to the Anxious in Austin podcast. Yeah, welcome. It has maybe been a minute. I am Dr. Marianne Stout, the Anxiety Treatment Center of Austin. And I'm Dr. Thomas Bithyman, author of Woo-hoo! Dating Without Fear, Overcome Social Anxiety and Connect. Any interest in social anxiety, please go check it out. It's fantastic. And so it has been a minute since we've done a podcast, but we typically do just whatever has been coming up for us clinically, what's been top of mind. And so (laughs) this one I chose that may be a little, you know, surprising to you. Um, Okay. The, I, I wanted to do basically what's been coming up a lot is working on motivation or kind of the why. Uh-huh. For making this change, right? Why Why should I change? Because I think it's really easy to, I mean, maybe not that easy, but to make an appointment with a psychologist, mm-hmm. right? To set up an intake, even to come in and kind of give your story. Um, those are all, I think, the easier steps. Mm-hmm. The hard is once you start, even maybe doing like the, some of that initial right thought record stuff. Uh-huh different but not that hard i think once you start making some of this behavior change it's hard especially right like doing exposure exposure is very difficult that's why we don't we don't start with that right uh-huh. <laughs> kind of a slow build yeah. to get there yeah um and very effective of, but i mean it, yeah research wise very effective but a high dropout rate yeah, there yeah. is a reason people don't just initially do exposures on their own. There's a reason why, right, you go to professional and learn how to do it. It's mm-hmm. it's not intuitive and it's it takes effort. And it's hard and it's scary. You got to tolerate a lot of discomfort. Like, you know, probably what vast majority of therapists aren't doing oh, exposure or no. having exactly. anybody do exposure and it's an unusual it, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And even I think just behavior change in general, right? Like it's hard. There's a reason why we do things. Yes. Like we do things because we are reinforced for it or it has become a habit. Um, And so I think the idea then of like, why should I change? I think has been coming up a lot. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I've just been having a lot of resistance with clients. And so it's been coming Uh up a lot clinically. Um, so, so like, having having the conversation like, like with people about why change this? Yeah, why okay. should I? Because this is so different or difficult. Yeah. Kind of, I might, I might even like theoretically grasp that it would be helpful to change, mm-hmm. but you know, I think there really needs to be a lot of buy-in and belief to shift yeah. it from theoretical to mm-hmm. practical. Um, so those are things I've been coming across. And so I'm curious how other people work with it. And yeah, okay. um, yeah, I think it's something, an area which I'm always like looking for new ideas. Yeah, <laughs> new, yeah, yeah, okay. New metaphors and new things to draw from yeah. with it. Okay, well, I mean, I will be really curious to hear, and I'm sure for anybody that, that listens, you know, the, the idea of... Um, the motivation to change and any ways of working on that, are, I think pretty, pretty, pretty relevant. Because all of us, all of us struggle to change. All of us have a lot of, sure, you know, if you want to call it resistance, you know, or habitual ways of doing things. I think, I think I mean, everyone deals with that. 
Yes, and that's, I think, also why it was, I mean, this has come up within my own life so much, mm-hmm. so I think I could relate, yeah. right? I hate change. I am yeah, such that's, a creature that's, of habit. That's one of your refrains. I'll, oh, yes. I'll bring something up and your answer will be, I hate change. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So, I do. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and yet, it's hard to be a human on this planet and not, not engage with change or be forced into change at times. So I've also been thinking about like, okay, so for clients that I have who have struggled to have change or maybe have change happen as quickly as they'd like, how can I empathize? How can I relate? What has helped me personally? You know, what are, what are things that I've worked through? So I think that's part of why maybe it's come up both clinically and personally. Clinically and personally. Okay, great. Yeah. So that's, that's the relevance of this. Yeah. And I, and I think it's probably going to resonate. I'll be very curious to to uh, to see what you've come up with, and I'll certainly, yeah, exploring it and telling you my ways of coming at things. Yeah, well, I think of I really use a lot of I'll get into it in a little bit, but motivational interviewing a lot uh-huh. for some of the resistance. I think that's definitely a go-to. Yeah. Um, I also always in an intake start with like goals. What are uh-huh. your goals? So we can make it. You know, goals shift and change, but at least from the beginning, have it be like explicitly stated by the client, you know, saying it out loud, I think is helpful of uh-huh. what I, what I want, where I'd like to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, and identifying it, right? Like just like identifying, like clarifying for yourself. Yeah. Wait, this is, this is where I'm trying to go, right? Because some percentage I'm sure of, of not changing is not, is not doing it at the clarifying and, you know, deciding, yeah, clarifying what the, what you're looking for and what a good direction is. Yes. And I think too, right. There is also that piece of kind of accountability. Uh-huh. If we say, I, I want this or mm-hmm. I'm going to work toward this, right. If um, we say that out loud to someone else, someone hears us say it, especially someone we're going to maybe see on a weekly basis, uh-huh. uh, right. We, we want to, we want to not go back on our word or we want to feel like a, a truthful person. Yeah. So I think that part, identifying those clear goals can be helpful in moving towards change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's interesting, right? Because the, like I hear that a lot too from people of like, Oh, I like, I like to have some accountability or somebody who's going to ask me about it. I think there's mm-hmm. something about that, that just knowing someone else, knows about it it's it's just it brings it up in mind more often so mm-hmm. there's some there's some benefit to that and there's also depending on certain people you know like the that might add um extra motivation into the the part that is you know the parts of us that are driving towards change there is a question of you know like what what part of you is that like what's the motivation gives the motivation well, I don't want to get in trouble, mm, mm-hmm. so I'm going to I'm going to follow through on this. That's like you know a negative valence motivation, but it is a motivation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in this instance, right? It's like because I talk about that with clients. Like, let's mm-hmm. make it very clear. So we, you know, because people like to, it helps with that accountability piece, and people don't yeah. like to like be hypocrites. So I think like stating it like, hey, we're using maybe this 
I don't say shame based, but like, uh-huh. <laughs> um, way, but we're using it kind of for good, right? Like uh-huh. using, being very explicit about like why we're doing this. Um, mm-hmm. but it's like trying to use maybe some of those motivators that aren't always the kindest, but to use them to uh-huh. help us set ourselves up for success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean the, you know, the, we don't want to overly rely on shame and negative kind of valence motivations like you know like, i'm going to do this thing out of fear or i'm going to do this thing out of out of you know shame and wanted to hide my flaws like that's not a great motivator i mean well no it is, actually is a very powerful motivator <laughs> it's, it's just it's a, a great motivator of, there's a lot of cost to it you know because mm-hmm. the research actually is right that those those negative type of motivations do work and in sure. fact you can you can certainly see a lot of people that are very high achieving and work a lot and are very motivated, not necessarily joyous in mm-hmm. a lot of that work. A lot of it feels like it is, you know, it can be triggered by fear and shame or even just sort of escape from pain. Sure. Um, but yeah, can, can lead to motivation and, and achievement of goals. With some costs. I mean, we're going to get on a tangent, but I would argue, yeah. right, that like most of us work on external motivation for most things, right? Mm. Well, I think we talked about this maybe like during one of our many pandemic episodes that yeah. we as humans are bad at continually motivating ourselves for lots of things on a daily yeah. basis, right? That internal uh-huh. motivation doesn't work too well, right? We don't, yeah. like things mm-hmm. slide and we don't stick to schedules. We don't show up to things and we don't, yeah, do all the things we would like to do um, mm-hmm. and so, because we don't usually have to. We usually have this external motivation to rely on, right? Yeah. Like my entire- It's scheduled. Yes, right? my entire company shows up to the office at 8 a.m. And so they're gonna notice if I'm not there. So yeah. I'm gonna get out of bed at seven or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. right? Where if it was just left up to myself, mm-hmm. I might have that, but I'm not going to do that, you know, consistently if it was just up to me. So I think there is this piece that like, it would be great if everything was more just because it's in line with my internal motivation, but I also don't think that that's how it works. And I think there is a difference between, um, I mean, I don't know the research on this, but I think there is a difference between kind nudges (laughs) Right yes. and uh-huh. and unkind nudges. Like when we have talked about in self compassion, I love that. I always use that example with the coach for the t-ball yeah. team. Right, mm-hmm. the mean coach is like, "You stink and you're terrible at this, and what's wrong with you?" Versus the other one is like, "Hey, we have work to do. Right, things. Yeah. We mm-hmm. we we need to improve. Plenty to work on. Let but us practice let's, this. Let's yeah, practice. It's not the again. It's not like." You're perfect. You're great. Nothing's wrong. Yeah. So I think there is but a difference between... But it's not between... threat-driven in the yeah. same way, right? It's yeah. like accepting things are here and we want to go here. Kind of how can we do it? It's so not I Pollyanna, think... but exactly. it's also not threat-based. Yeah. So I would think as a as a psychologist, right, mm-hmm. working more towards being Coach B than Coach A of like, let's state our goals. Yes. Let's check in on them. Yeah. I always say, like, this isn't school. You're not going to get in trouble if you don't do your homework, but you're going to yeah. get more out of this if you yes. do your homework. You get more out of it faster. Yeah, yeah. I, I get I get that, too. And I, I do think the... 
like maybe we, you're planning to get more into this as we go but i i do think like we we, we want to sort of acknowledge that the that initial part you were talking about of like identifying what you want and also like why you want it like clarifying that like writing it down like really sort of exploring it and bringing that to the surface is is a really important and the first step just like i mean honestly any other time we talk about anything the identification is is probably the most important part Mm-hmm. The foundation of like all therapy, yeah. <laughs> working on yeah. identifying mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's true for like you know for for goal setting too, right? Like you mm-hmm. have to clarify clarify the goal and like what what is it that you're trying to achieve and be really clear about it. Mm-hmm. And that is gonna that's gonna allow um, in whatever that mix of emotions that you're. You know, it's kind of my frame of it of the mix of emotions that you're caught in. It's helping that the part that um, wants to change to be expressed and be be heard and sort of come to the surface. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then I don't know if you remember this from grad school. I pulled it up the stages of change model. Oh, of course, of course. I yeah, yeah. I I really like this piece. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I so I think when you think of the stages of change model i think this right identifying your goals mm-hmm. kind of helps shift it from that that pre-contemplative state yeah. right like well do you, i haven't really thought wanna, about it yeah do you want to quickly give anybody who didn't go Ooh. to grad school <laughs> yeah <laughs> a brief idea of yes. what the stages of change general so like, this premises? ready to yeah here's for the nerding yeah. out time pre-contemplation um, okay wait, this, wait can, can can I just say, like, oh. can, I, can I give just a quick general one-sentence yeah, frame, framework for this? So the idea of the stages of change is that you basically don't just jump straight into changing, that there is a process of um, stages that are important that you go through that before you even get to the point of changing. So And those stages are just as important. Yes. Um, so it's it, and this is useful because people can be really hard on themselves. Like, oh, I haven't done this thing, and I, I wanted to. Well, it's because maybe you're not at the change stage. Maybe you're in an earlier stage right now. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Um, Back to yes, the this is detail uh, on that. developed by Prochaska and Di Clemente in the '70s when they were researching mm-hmm. smokers who wanted to quit. Um, mm-hmm. So pre-contemplation. In this stage, people do not intend to take action in the foreseeable future. Within the six month, next six months, people are often unaware that their behavior is problematic or produces negative consequences. They underestimate the pros of changing and place too much emphasis on the cons of changing. And so we don't really see a ton of people maybe in this, this stage of change because, right, like you're not going to therapy if you don't think you have a problem. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would say, you know, like uh, since we all as humans have so many problems um i would say we see people in these what they're coming in for is not in pre-contemplation but there are likely other oh sure other problems that are in pre-contemplation or that they they don't maybe see how it relates to yeah or or it hasn't it hasn't come up yet like i i don't know for you but for, for me i do find when i'm working with people whatever the initial problem is um we will tackle that and it's very likely that 
okay, well, let's. I kind of now want to work on the one that's like the next one Step down. Step B. Mm-hmm. You know, below that. And like stuff that was not being addressed earlier gets addressed later. Yes. I always, yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about this so much, but like, yeah, yeah, I'm always like secretly after we work on like our traditional CBT for mm-hmm. whatever your specific anxiety disorder OCD is, then often there's mm-hmm. a large like shame component. So we're going to work on some self-compassion. Yes. <laughs> I'd yes. say that's a good... Yeah, it gets to some 75% deeper. of the population that I work with, at least. Yeah, yeah. deeper work. And and I also am a, you know, I'm very biased, but I'm also a um, believer that the therapy process is a lifelong process of human psychological growth. Mm-hmm. So we'll be working on stuff forever. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, the next one, contemplation, I'd say this is often where we capture people, mm-hmm. right, who are coming in to our door for the first time. Um, in this stage, people are intending to start the healthy behavior in the foreseeable future, defined as within the next six months. People oh. recognize that their behavior may be problematic, and a more thoughtful and practical consideration um, of, the pros, oh, of the pros and cons of changing the behavior takes place with equal emphasis on both. Um, even with this recognition, people may still feel ambivalent towards changing their behavior. And so that's, that's kind of what this whole podcast is about today is like people in that contemplation, Contemplation. how to shift from contemplation into preparation and action. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that contemplation is the, uh, I'm aware that there's something and I'm thinking about changing it and mm-hmm. ambivalence um, yeah. will acknowledge is a is, is that internal conflict yes between i i'm going to say there's a piece of us that wants to change this piece of us that doesn't there's mm-hmm. a mix of motivations that are in in some conflict so yeah. that's where we'll see people yeah yes like this desire to change i know it would be helpful but mm-hmm. this resistance it feels like it would be painful or difficult in mm-hmm. some way and so I don't, you know, I need your help with this piece. And so that's, I feel like that's so often uh-huh. where we get can, people. Can you give us a, a quick example? Cause like this, obviously we've talked about these, these people are talking about it from like a cigarettes, which I think is probably very easy for like a listener to be like, oh yeah, I, I can get this, this conflict. This sure. It's like, oh, I want to stop smoking. I've heard it's really bad for my health. Yeah. And I just really crave it and it helps me like when I'm stressed, I want it. Like, like we get that that one that's easy but can you give us an example that yeah. you, you see for like anxiety for sure um i eve i think this comes up i think where i encounter this the most is people will be willing to do exposures that are embarrassing them you know like i don't want people to see me um washing my hands 20 times when I'm out in public mm-hmm. going to the bathroom. So there, I think there's some willingness around like, I don't, I don't want that, that judgment or I have to ask my loved one for reassurance about whatever I'm worrying about, you know, a hundred times and they get annoyed with me. And so there, there's, I think often more willingness for those pieces to work on some behavior change where I find this is way tougher is the internal mm-hmm. piece, right? So often, especially with like, generalized anxiety disorder where there's excessive worry or OCD where a lot of the compulsions are, are mental compulsions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's where a lot of this comes up, right? Like, okay, so that would mean not picking it up. I get an intrusive thought and I don't immediately pick it up. I don't immediately engage with it. You know, the mm -hmm. what if, I'm trying to think of like um, an example without giving away like something a client. Uh-huh, to make more <laughs> anonymous. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, what if my kid doesn't do well in school kind of thing, you know, yeah. maybe like a more GAD example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, like I, what we're really working on is, you know, maybe some worry postponement or worry time, not yeah. in, or even just some mindfulness of yeah. noticing the thought. Yeah, and stepping not back from the thought it. without yes. gauging it, without engaging with it and trying to solve it. Got to fix the problem, right? Thinking it through. Yeah. Because what we're all always talking about is like, the problem is not what if my kid doesn't mm -hmm. do well in school. The problem is I have that thought and then I immediately have to come up with solutions for that thought. That's the problem. Sure. And yeah. so they might okay. get that. Oh, I get it. But mm -hmm. um, no one, you know, it's just so easy to pick it up and engage with it. Or there's some beliefs around like, is it, but I could do yeah. something. With it's it going it to so help helpful. me. I can, I can solve this because it, it's, mm -hmm. it's an attempt at, you know, problem solving. that's not very effective. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. Or I can make so, myself feel better. Yeah. The anxiety will go down if I just come up with a couple of quick solutions here. Right. Yes. And so that's where yeah. they might get that like, hey, I see how me constantly worrying is mm. keeping me from engaging actually with my family or my child or keeping me from doing the things I would like to be doing, like enjoying yes. the television show we're all watching as a family or getting my work done on time or what have you, right? I might understand that, again, theoretically, <laughs> but yes. it's so hard, you know, that, that, again, what this is talking about, that weighing the pros and cons, I could understand what those pros mm -hmm. would be, but the cons don't don't really feel yeah. big enough, or I, I don't feel gotcha. like those, yeah. you know, are so bad that they completely yeah. don't weigh. Because yeah. the cons would be, maybe mm -hmm. there's a problem and I, I don't, I don't, figure it yeah. out like maybe I mean maybe there's a solution to that problem and I don't mm -hmm. figure it out or um, you know maybe I could reduce my anxiety quickly by, by engaging with this worry and so I don't yeah. want to not mm -hmm. do it or how do I know that not engaging with it is going to make gonna... fewer of these thoughts come I how can yeah. trust that right so there's yeah. I think that's a uh -huh. common example of like that ambivalence yeah. of like totally yeah. know this theoretically they say this would be helpful but mm -hmm. can I really trust it but but yeah anyway. but I still part of me really still wants to to do this and and also that like the like the exposure example you know with so for me it would be like whatever social anxiety exposures or sure you know, or doing OCD exposures then well you know Part of me knows, like I've sort of read the research or I've talked about this and I know that it's it's been shown to bring anxiety down, but there's another part of me that's just terrified and thinks it's going to go horribly wrong mm -hmm. and it wants to protect me. So it wants me to avoid and feel more comfortable. So mm -hmm. that's that's a conflict. And I think also, um, you know, since there is so much uh, depression in anxiety, in depression, we have one, one clearly well-researched treatment is behavioral activation, Doing which things. is... You are, yeah, you are feeling really shut down and have no energy and nothing sounds fun. And there's that, that part of you is strong. And we also know that if you schedule more activities and go do more activities, depression 
tends to improve. And, but, but then uh, I will oftentimes have those, those kind, of, um, uh, kind of frozen moments with people where they're like, I know that if I go exercise or I know if I do this or I know that if I meditate, if I know if I do these things, I will, I will have these benefits, but I can't get myself to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The cons being like how uncomfortable it will be. Maybe. To yeah. do, to mm-hmm. shift, you know, my behaviors or how yeah. much, um, yeah, energy I'll have to drum up when yeah. I'm feeling yeah. really how, low. How, how, how much effort it'll take to push through these things. Yeah. Or, or the idea that it's not going to work or that yeah. it'll, or I uh, it'll the, go badly. I'll fail. Yeah. And I think the really hard thing, especially with depression, but also with anxiety, is that it's not just a one-time thing. I think that piece of, right, that con feels like, okay, maybe I could drum up the effort or energy to do it, to go exercise Mm -hmm. or to meet up with a friend once. But you're telling me I got to do this multiple times a day for weeks before I start to see Mm -hmm. some big, just natural shifts in motivation and energy. Like, that seems like too much effort, right? I think that's part of it too. The difficulty is, right, you're working, the pro and con, you're working on short-term Right, short term, I get yeah. benefit with doing mm-hmm. these old behaviors, yeah. um, and it'd be the other one is like, okay, it's going to take a while. You know, it's not going to have that short term relief. Yeah, short term. Well, I, I I know that you and I will talk about this as being the the sort of core human problem is that <laughs> it's that things that help us in the long term hurt in the short term, and things mm-hmm. that feel good in the short term hurt in the long term, mm-hmm. and that's our just fundamental human struggle. Mm. done psychology explained <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah but but yeah we'd, but that that would be an example right i know this is in the long term but i know i'm not gonna like it in the short term yeah. i know i shouldn't do this in the short term but i know it'll help me in the long term conflicts yeah so anyways mm-hmm. that, that's this this contemplation stage where there is some like one party that wants to do something different and there's another party that doesn't and they are in in conflict so this is, you know, just a lighthearted podcast today about how to fix the fundamental problem that all humans experience <laughs> to Very be true. a human. That's all I wanted us to address. Yeah. Um, well, let me. We've got a few more minutes, so yeah, we, we can, we can it. finish that off. Done. Um, what were those other stages? Um, so preparation or determination. Um, in this stage, people are, people are ready to take action within the next 30 days. People start to take small steps toward the behavior change, and they believe changing their behavior can lead to a healthier life. These are some of the most exciting parts, I think, in therapy. Like, I, it's so fun, I think, to see people start to make those shifts. I feel like that's personally very rewarding. Um, that's where I get a lot of positive reinforcement for the work yeah, that we do. Uh-huh is when people start to experience this piece. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm working on, we are working on shifting people from contemplation into preparation. Um, the next is action. In this stage, people have recently changed their behavior, defined as within the last six months, and intend to keep moving forward with that behavior change. People may exhibit this by modifying their problem behaviors or acquiring new healthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is maintenance. In this stage, people have sustained their behavior change for a while, more than six months, and intend to maintain the behavior change moving forward. 
people in this stage work to prevent relapse to earlier stages. And then the last one, they have termination. In this stage, people have no desire to return to their unhealthy behaviors and are sure they will not relapse. Since this is rarely reached and people tend to stay in the maintenance stage, the stage is often not considered in health promotion programs. Sorry, that's just on this end I don't have to talk about. Um, so yes, I think that piece okay. of how we help people shift. I mean, I really think it is moving, what we're doing is moving from that, that contemplation to preparation, right? Like when we get people in action, that's great. That's fun. But I feel like that's not the focus so much of what our work is, what we're trying to, we're trying to convince people do this hard work. It's going to work out. It's going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Maybe shift up the the level of cons, right? Like how big those feel, feel, or I guess, you know, make those feel stronger and make those feel worse, right? I'd really identify how bad those are. Kind that's, of that. yeah. Okay, so, that's, so that, that, that's interesting. So the, um, like m my understanding with motivational interviewing um, is I, I guess what really the piece that I, I pull out of that, um, and the stages of change in motivational interviewing are like related. Um, the piece I pull out of stages of change is that you're not always going to be in action. So be compassionate with yourself about being where you are and that the, it is important to go to be in the stage that you're in in order to get where you want to go. So being compassionate about that and not attacking yourself and not having already changed. Contemplation is a important stage. So good. That is also... That is also doing good work, is, is working within contemplation. So that's what I pull personally from states of change. From motivational interviewing, the, the core that I pull from that, and like, I don't know if there's more you want to say about it, but the, for, for me that core is I, like identifying and giving voice to like space and differentiate, differentiation and space and voice to those two those two or more competing motivations rather than siding with one oh, sure. over the other and like trying to trying to yell at it or criticize it or shut it down or like attack it in some way. Instead, it's like creating space for both and then trying to figure out a way of negotiating. That's, that's how I see the motivational interviewing um, perspective, my take on it. Yeah, yeah. Um... I think what I find so interesting, what I love with motivational interviewing is, yes, like seeing why we're doing what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because often when I'm working with clients about talking about actual change and resistance and difficulty with change, they're like, no, there's just nothing good about what I'm doing. And it's like, if there was nothing good about mm -hmm. what you were doing, you wouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. Like, there yeah. is, you are getting... Everything is trying to help. Right? Yeah. Like, I think there's. A, I find myself saying this all the time. Let's be let's be curious whenever anything's happening because there is there is a reason why that's happening. The the PCU that's doing this is it's trying to it's trying to help in some way. It may be more costly than it is beneficial, sure. or a lot of times, right? This this might be too much detail for now, but a lot of times it was it's redoing. It's using a certain um, process that was helpful in the past or the distant sure. past that may not be useful now. Yeah, maybe that's why it comes up. But it's always it's always an attempt to help. Mm -hmm. So understanding 
how it's helping or how it's attempting to help is really, really useful, especially for self-compassion. I was just going to say, especially in like areas of shame. No, it's just bad and I'm bad and that's why I'm doing this. Like, hold up. Like, right. We don't do things for nothing. This, there is something that is helping you in some way or you're getting something out of it in some way. You know, this idea, I think to go back to that, I want my kids to do well in school or whatever I had said earlier. Right. Like Mm -hmm. ultimately like you're feeling like I'm able to take some action to help my child succeed. Right. Like, yeah. Yes, maybe the way you're going about it isn't ultimately long-term helping mm-hmm. because you're not actually able to interact with your, you know, be yeah. present in your relationship as much. But there is, it's a feeling of, hey, I'm, I'm helping set them up for success and being a good parent. It's an important, yeah, it's an important motivation, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe if you bring that motivation up to the surface and understand, oh, this is what that motivation is, this is what's important to me and why, the you maybe discover, oh wait, maybe there's, maybe there's multiple ways that I can achieve that particular goal, or I can, you know, like, attend to that motivation. Maybe it's not by, I forget what your example was, like, you know, maybe, maybe it's not coming at it from that direction. Maybe there's, if I'm being, you know, um, more like calmer and more present and more mindful, yeah. I will be able to think of alternative possible solutions or. Um, some that are less emotionally driven or less habitual, right? Less automatic. Like we can choose more why we're, like, like how we will reach that particular goal. Yeah, no, completely. Yes. Um, and what am I, yeah, maybe missing by focusing only on this, one, only on worry as the way to solve things, right? Like what am yeah. I, mm-hmm. what am I, what parts of this whole picture am I not? seeing then if this is the only lens in which I'm viewing this problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it does. I think it really helps calm some of the anxiety about mm-hmm. the anxiety, right? Like, uh, I'm so bad, or why do I do this this way, or what's wrong with me? Like, it gives some understanding and calmness to like, oh, that's why I'm doing this. Oh, yeah. that kind of uh-huh. makes some sense as to why can't stop engaging with worry or I can't stop whatever or I keep avoiding things or Mm. I or I don't ask people out when I like them or I never invite anyone to do anything or I keep turning down things that I want to do or I keep not whatever it is yeah understanding oh yeah I'm getting I'm getting something out of this or it's protecting me in some way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like a lot of these these things are protection instincts Totally. Oh, yeah. And so I think I love that part with motivational interviewing because I I think most clients have already beat themselves up enough Mm -hmm. about I just need to be different or I just need to change or I'm wrong or I'm bad and what's wrong Mm -hmm. with me. And then I think also they can get mad at you as the therapist, right? Like, I came here for you to fix me. I'm not changing. (laughs) Uh You're not doing your job, right? And you yeah. both are feeling stuck in those moments, yeah. right? Like we mm-hmm. both feel a little stuck. Like we get it theoretically what needs to happen, but it's not happening. Yeah. Something's mm-hmm. something's going on. And so I think like motivational interviewing is such a fun way of attacking this problem in an untraditional way of you're yeah. wrong. This is what you need to do to change, right? It's looking yes. at the problem like, hey, there's different things that could be contributing to this. Yeah. And it's not a wrong. It's not because something's wrong. Somebody's wrong. 
Yeah. Right? It's a very like empathic, yeah, collaborative way of addressing mm-hmm. the change. I think. Yeah, and the the like having that that empathy internally, which is we're talking about here, is practicing empathy and compassion. Like actually trying to understand that side of you, that particular motivation being being kind to yourself in trying to understand and listen to that rather than criticizing and yelling and suppressing and yeah it's the generally the, the more self-compassion we have the better things go and then you know of course inevitably yeah but if i don't yell at myself i won't change but you've been yeah. yelling at yourself and that have you changed been working <laughs> yeah so so yeah, the, the I do think that um, to me there's also a mindful process because in order to figure this out, you've got to step back and observe and name. Like you've got to create that that cognitive distance hmm. from yourself in order to understand. Oh wait, I have this motivation and this motivation, and this hmm. is what I care about here, and this is what I care about on this other side. This is why there's there's a conflict, and that requires you to be like self distanced. Hmm. Which is, I, you know, beneficial. Well, and I think also, too, maybe I'm, I'm not as clear right now on how I can explain this, but I think that piece, too, if I can see why I'm doing something and I can mm-hmm. see kind of the... It shifts it from pros and cons to kind of like... I love the wording that's used in motivational interviewing. Like, uh-huh. why are you, what are you getting out of, what are the positives of not changing? And then what yeah. are the positives of changing, right? It's, a, it's not like yeah. one's good, one's bad, right? It's, yeah. It identified, which that, that's the part that really kind of like, you know, has people yeah. do a double take, like, what do you mean the positives of, of not changing? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that piece also, right, gives a little bit more ownership then, right? It's not, well, my therapist told me I need to do these exposures or my therapist told me I need to do this mindfulness. My therapist told me I need to postpone and engaging with worry, right? Like it has a little bit of ownership of like, oh, I can see why I'm not doing this homework or whatever it might be, not making these changes. Um, It is more like on on me then as opposed to somebody telling me Uh what to do. I don't know if I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. Because it, so yeah, when you have more ownership, you're more likely to follow through on things. So I do remember one of the um, one of the aspects of motivational interviewing is if you've got ambivalence, which is two different parts either in conflict with each other. If you side, like if you as the therapist side with one half mm. of the conflict, then the client tends to side with the other half of the conflict mm. and then you end up having the conflict between you, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that, that is, that's one of the takeaways I have from that too, because there, I do feel like in CBT, there is a little bit of oh gosh, get, get into one side of the conflict and really, you know, really push the, push the person to do what you want. You know? So I, I have over time really, really stepped away from, from doing that. I am very much more, um, step back and having them identify the the conflict themselves mm-hmm. and asking them what they want to do with it and and what I've noticed is like rather than that there is I still feel like there's still this like undercurrent Pleasing. what's that 
Oh, I think, uh, well, like yeah. the accountability, like, I know you want me to do this, so I'm going to, I should probably choose yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's still that. And it's like within motivational interviewing, like as well, um, I still feel like they, they have a clear direction Agenda. they want you to go. Yeah. They want you to move along these, like, like you could hear it in the language where it was like, it's almost like you're trying to use this slightly mind tricks to, to get people to do what you want rather than just yelling at them to get what you want, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, like I, I still feel that within motivational interviewing. So what I personally prefer is, um, like, like I know in motivational interviewing, they're like, Oh, make sure they really tell you as much as they can about all the negatives. I'm like, well, yeah, it's good, but that still feels a little, a little pushy to me. Um, so I tend to come at it from um, each half of the ambivalence, the motivation to change, the motivation not to change. They're both equals. And from your kind of stepped back position as the, the sort of adult, Wise the mind. adult brain, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the adult self, you were, you're doing like conflict negotiation. Mm. So you're not going to side with one party. You're helping them. You're helping this conflict try to find some, some way to resolve itself. So I think of that as being like you don't you don't push either side. Mm. You want both sides to, to be be heard, and understood, and acknowledged, and have self compassion directed at them. Mm. Um, and then, can you give an example of what that might look like in some of the work that you do? Um, I probably can, um, but let me finish the, uh, okay, the okay, okay. this 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 sort of end of this this kind of like guess this model of how I currently do things. So I do want both of these these um, motivations, or more if there's multiple of them. But you know, both sides of that conflict to be heard and listened to and attended to, and um, to have self compassion for it. But then you, as the adult brain, the prefrontal cortex brain. You were sort of like, okay, what am I going to do with this? You've heard, you fully heard both sides, but like, like in act, you don't want one particular motivation to get given the wheel and drive. You as the adult want to be like making a decision with this. So hearing from this side and hearing from that side, they both are trying to help. Let me take those in. Let me consider the source, take those in. And what do I think is the best compromise here? I can't completely shut down one side. Because if you try to completely shut down a motivation you have or a part of you, it's going to just yell at you. It's going to like come back more and more. Like, so I, at this point, encourage people to like, we, we've got to attend to both sides. And what that a lot of times will look like. So I'll be asking, well, you've got to kind of blend these motivations in some way. So what can you do that will be, from your adult point of view, be like the best blending of these two? The extent to which the, the whatever, the protective side is helpful and the extent to which the change side is. So like an example um, comes up since, you know, I do a lot of social anxiety work. Um, it might be around this this conflict where like a part of somebody really wants to connect 
likes somebody, wants to be social, wants to connect. But then there's another part of them that is stopping them from doing it. And generally, self-criticism comes in. Oh, I, can't, I don't know why I'm doing it. It's not me. What's wrong with me? This anxiety is bad. You know, it's like attacking. Self-attack, which just um, gets the whole system riled up. Um, so instead, what I'm wanting them to do is understand, like we talked about, understand, be curious about where is this coming from? Why is, why is this, this motivation kicking in? Why is this part of you stopping you from acting? And generally, it's, we'll discover that it's protective. Like the anxiety is protective. It's either freezing you so you don't do anything that's um, gonna get you in trouble or it's, it's kicking in like a shutdown so you take no action and you just sort of feel, feel depressed, you give up, you know, like any of those kind of things. So we're understanding what the ways that the, the protective part is stopping the risk taking, the risk to do something important. And then we'll step back, rather than yelling at the, the part that's stopping the change and calling it resistance, we are seeing, oh, it's trying to help trying to protect you from from shame and criticism and okay so that is a legitimate motivation you do need to be protected from criticism and and attack and you know those things are real those are painful that's a legitimate motivation we, we don't want it to drive the bus but it deserves to be on the bus it's a legitimate motivation on the other hand you also really want to connect with people and you like this person they probably would want to hang out or it's worth taking this risk. So then I'm asking, well, the adult brain, the adult who's doing the conflict negotiation, what would be a potential compromise that both of these motivations would be okay with as a step for right now? And this essentially then translates to a low step on the hierarchy. I feel like that's right? such better language for what I am always of like, let's work on what's realistic and doable. <laughs> let's mm -hmm. not overshoot it. Cause yes, you could do that once, but you're not going to keep up with it. Like let's yeah. work with, you know, what, what is realistic? What is doable? You know, what? Yeah. Yeah. And then like that's and a then, much better way of talking about. Yeah. That's, yeah. Thing. Great. Yeah, Cause that's, a, that's how I, that's how I've been sort of coming at it now. Mm. And then what I find tends to happen, right. Is, if you have come up with a, a compromise, it's like it's, it's a first step compromise. Mm -hmm. um, the, the conflict tends to settle down. People tend to feel like less, less of that internal turmoil. Mm. And I don't tell them, therefore go do this. Yeah. You know, because again, I want their ownership. I don't want it to be me pushing things. So I've, that's how I've taken it. Then he's asking him, okay, so based on all this, what, what do you, you want do? to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what what do you want to do this week? And they'll, I will always have this idea like, well, it's clear to me that this is the step. And 80% of the time, I am incorrect. <laughs> because they have access to all the, their internal stuff. And they're like, oh, I think it'll be this. And then it, it, that's the right answer, right? And so what tends to happen is, yeah, things are settled down. And they're more likely to follow through, and it's not through gritting the teeth and clenching the fists. They've decided, okay, I'm probably going to go do this. And if they do, um, 
the different these different pieces of them or the different motivations will learn something from the experience. You know, the the part that wants to change will pick up something from what happened that will oh, give them more that. information next time. And the part that is trying to protect them will pick up something too. Like either, oh, huh, wait, that is not quite so dangerous as I thought. And then when we come for the, the next negotiation session, there's more information to work with and the, the, they're probably less angry at each other and maybe they're like, well, you know, having based on that, I think we could maybe have this next step. So I will stop there so I'm not just doing some huge, massive uh, speech. And we probably need to wrap up. Okay. This podcast, right, I feel mm-hmm. like maybe we didn't have as set a schedule for things, but I love, yeah, I feel like I learned something new, a new way of helping me work with clients with resistance, and hopefully people listening did too. Yeah. Thinking well, about I mean, their good. own ways of, of change and, and motivation. Yeah, good. Good job coming coming up with with a a good topic for us to <laughs> to to you know get back to yeah fun stuff to talk about was was there any last uh, like I know you always do research and have things you wanna is is there any last things you wanna kind of leave us with or tell us that would be helpful? well that's mainly what I did was working on the looking up like motivational interviewing and um, stages of change but I mean you're right I feel like we secretly have an agenda and maybe the motivational interviewing has a, a secret agenda. Maybe theirs is pushed more, but so much of what I really love with it is like working on that empathy and kind of, as opposed to like, yeah. Yeah. Forcefulness. So, yeah. yeah. And so it's I softer. It's really, mm-hmm, which I, I relate to well, right. I'm drawn yeah. to more. Um, yes. But I think it is like thinking of these pieces of, if I want to have change, Increasing curiosity, right? I think that's the yeah. take-home message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great one, I think. Yeah, if you want to learn more about us and what we do, uh, you can email me, Marianne at anxietyaustin.com. Where can they learn more about this fantastic book that you wrote? You just go to whatever your local Amazon is and look up me, Thomas Smithyman, or um, Dating Without Fear, Overcome Social Anxiety and Connect. There's Kindle version if you feel like hiding it so no one can see what you're reading on the train. Um, there's a paperback if you feel like proudly showing it to the world. There's an audiobook out in case you want to hear me give you 12 hours worth of uh, therapy on this. Thanks for coming and, and listening. I hope it's helpful. Yeah, I hope you got something out of it today. We'll see you next time.